But as soon as you can hit them with a problem that relates to them in some way, now they're interested. Uh, people care about their problems first. And if you can reduce or remove one of their problems, they, they will pay with their attention. And then if you can show them that that's a business, then they will pay with their money. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 81. This episode is sponsored by the impactful Business Leadership Mastermind. The Mastermind brings together hungry entrepreneurs and business owners who want to scale their business, share ideas and solutions, grow, and be held accountable, as well as build their networks. Learn more at impactfulcoaching.com forward slash BLM. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Scott Sandlin. Scott is the CEO of Cyrano.ai, a company focusing on artificial empathy and strategic linguistics. As a former head of a mental health clinic and longtime technologist, Scott has experience leading purpose-driven organizations. He has been, he has been published in numerous peer-reviewed journals, including Psychology Today, Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine. And I'll just mention quickly that I had Jason Pfeiffer, editor of Entrepreneur Magazine, as my guest on the previous podcast. Scott has presented his AI work at the United Nations AI for Global Good Conference and is a frequent guest lecturer at various universities. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, thank you to Neil, Neil Sahoda, who is also a previous guest for making the connection. So I have to, I have to dive into something right away, because to me, there's a term in that intro that I read that sounds about as either contradictory or oxymoronic as possible. And sure. that is artificial empathy. Yeah. Yeah. To me, I... to me <laughs> empathy is real, right? Empathy is if you're artificial with your empathy, then by definition, it is not legit and it does not serve. So my question, Scott, is what is that? Clearly, I'm not understanding it right. And uh, and, and and why is it important? Why are you like no, it's, so it's a perfect? It? It's a perfect question because Neil, uh, who you just mentioned, is one of the people who sort of uh, branded us with that term. Uh, so he's an advisor um, and, and a great guy. Um, and my co-founder is a sociologist and neurolinguist and hates that term for exactly the reason that you're stating. Because he's like, linguistically, empathy is about sincerity and artificial sounds like we're faking empathy, uh, which exactly we definitely right. are not. Um, or at least I don't think we are. <laughs> um, so the idea is artificial intelligence, right? You know, uh, learning machines that uh, are uh, optimizing for certain outcomes and getting better and better at achieving those outcomes. That's an easy way of thinking of AI. And when I give lectures, I say, how many people could define AI to their grandmother or like differentiate between AI and just a normal computer? And most people can raise their hand. And then I say, how many people can tell me the difference between empathy and sympathy? And way fewer people can raise their hands. Interesting. Uh, and so the idea is sympathy is you tell me I had a bad day and I say, Sincerely, I say, wow, I'm really sorry you had a bad day. Mm -hmm. That's sympathy. Empathy is me thinking or even saying, what can I do to make it better? 
how can I help you? So the idea of empathy is this intrinsic desire for the improvement of the outcomes or experiences of others. And so what I'm looking at uh, at Cyrano.ai, or I should say we as a, as a team are looking at, is what we can do with learning machines so that they are intrinsically built to try to help make your mental and emotional states and just experience better. That's it. Um, and there's a lot of complicated ways that we can do that. But at that first level, what we're doing is having an AI that cares if you're happy or not, or mm -hmm. cares how it can help you be whatever we're going to call better. And that's what we do. So let's, yeah. So tell me, give us a simple example for starters of what that looks like practically. How does it, first of all, how does it know? How does the machine know where I'm, where I'm at, you know, emotionally and otherwise, and what kind of intervention could it provide? Sure. Yeah. And uh, it, it starts with that input that you're talking about. And what we measure is words and phrases in context. We're not looking at your pupil dilation or your facial expressions. We're not looking at the sound wave or your words per minute. We're really just looking at the words. And that means we could do that uh, with your social media feed. We could do that in a text message exchange. We could do that on a Zoom call. Uh, we can do it anywhere there are words. Uh, and what we're looking at is the way you're talking about the stuff you're talking about, whatever it is. So an easy example is uh, our system being able to say, wow, uh, we're listening to a conversation between John Smith and Jane Smith and their siblings are married or something because uh, they have the same last name, apparently. Um, and what we're noticing is John Every time you talk about topic X, you stop talking about solutions and you're only talking about problems. So you're really associated into your problem state and the mental state of being overwhelmed versus when you're talking about topic you know, A, B, or C, you're really outcome oriented. You're really uh, you know, goal oriented in that space. But in this one, you seem defeated. You seem overwhelmed. You seem some sort of negative constellation. Uh, what can we do to help improve that and remind you of your uh, resources, assets, or goals specifically in relation to that topic? Interesting. Because what's happening now, my, my head is spinning, not in the sense of I'm, I'm confused, but like the, the, the wheels are turning, so to speak. Sure. What I'm trying to understand here is a few things. First of all, there is a a freakish element that I'm trying to figure out. Like, um, is this a big brother kind of thing where I'm being stalked by, you know, every interaction? What, what is the, what's the platform? What's the yeah. interface? What's the, um, the framework for this kind of um, monitoring of yep. my interaction, number one. And number two, on the back end of it, whatever it is that you're, you're, you're culling, you're, you're pulling together, what is that next phase? Are you actually offering coaching? Are you offering an actual intervention or service? Or are you just highlighting that there's an issue and then it goes up the chain of command, let's say in their company, in their organization, and now they bring in their HR person, their internal coach, their whomever to go in and say, hey, John is having an issue over here. Why don't you see what he needs? Sure. So first, the, the last thing you said, we're definitely not doing on purpose. So I just want to say that first. Okay. Uh, but, but going backwards, uh, like you said, the framework uh, there's a lot of ethics that go into 
uh, the decisions around that question. And, and you're right, like that's that's a gears turning, big brother potential, black mirror episode, scary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's one of the reasons why I went to the um, United Nations AI for Global Good conference was to seek out all the AI ethicists and talk to them about what we have and what we can and should do with it. But, and also what we shouldn't do with it, right? Uh, so the platforms and the framework, we're, uh, we're in Zoom where we've, we've had uh, a little over 30,000 users uh, on the mm-hmm. platform uh, since, since the start of COVID-ish. Um, and just to talk about the framework of that, that tool will analyze your and my conversation. And then it will surface that and say, here's how aligned your priorities were. Here's how aligned your communication style was. Here's how committed you both were to different topics. And importantly, it's only doing that if both people know the call is being recorded and transcribed. So we, uh, you know, in the same way that any uh, other conversation, you know, you need to say, uh, this call is being recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we intentionally leaned in there and said, this thing won't do anything unless everybody knows everyone is on the record um, because of that fear. Um, the other place where we are today is email. And uh, we went through security reviews for, uh, you know, Google, Microsoft, Apple, uh, Yahoo Mail, all of them. Uh, and we went through their ethical and security review system and, uh, you know, obviously passed that. And so now when you and I send emails back and forth, it's not giving me insights that are sort of like how to weaponize against you, uh, but it's much more about how to optimize the, the lifetime value of our relationship. So it tells me how to collaborate with you. It tells me how to de-escalate when there's problems together. Uh, it, it does these kinds of things so that uh, it's improving your situation. Like you know, me as the user, it's improving my situation because I can better understand you. But also as a user, uh, it would allow me to better impart uh, ethical change work with you. So think of the back, uh, the idea of, Teen crisis hotline, suicide hotline, veterans affairs hotline—these kinds of places where they are—they're critical conversations. They're—they're they're some of the most important conversations happening on Earth are with volunteers mm-hmm. and strangers. And what if we built a tool that could just help that volunteer, that operator, that well-intentioned person to be five percent, ten percent, fifty percent more effective at connecting with this person in need? Okay, and so uh, I actually want to jump in on that, if I may, Scott, please. because you, you, you answered a question that I was thinking about, which is who wants this? In other words, who, who would be the person who would be, you know, purchasing this and, mm-hmm. and, and signing up for your service? Clearly, I can see the value for first responders or those who are providing that kind of intervention mm-hmm. that they're dealing with somebody who's in crisis mode. That part I get, that part is clear. And, um, and kudos to you if that's all that it did, you know, I can see how, how that can you know, make a huge difference. What I'm trying to do is think about this as bringing it now into the business space, for example. Yeah. So if I want to be better because I just want to you know, we all have bl- we all have blind spots. We all have areas where we've suffered because we've been misunderstood. And I want to make sure that my communications are strong and that I don't overreact to things. You know, I remember I, I'm a former head of school, so I remember distinctly numerous times with my email responses having my assistant head of school uh, read them first before I sent them. 
yeah. for feedback, right? Am I being too harsh? Am I, am I missing, you know, whatever it was. Yeah. So you want to be able to get feedback, especially on important issues. Yeah. But as an employee, I would imagine, unless a person is a real strong sense of A, wanting to grow, B, recognizing that maybe they've got these blind spots and that they're getting in that person's way, how are we getting this or how are you either, how are you doing it or how are you planning on do, integrating this kind of technology into a workplace where people may not necessarily welcome this level of analysis of who they are, how they operate, how they communicate? Sure. So the analysis that we provide only goes to the individual. It's not being uh, sent to their manager or their boss's boss's boss. Uh, this is something that they get to own, and it is passively there for your self-improvement. And so it's it's monitoring this um, in a way that, you know, in terms of personal identifying information redaction, in terms of security, in terms of all that, we we, we really, you know, started there and, and made sure that there was a, a good, like I said, ethical framework on that. Um, but the idea is, well, there's, there's a couple questions in there. I'm trying to figure out which one to uh, answer in a way that's the right process. But who wants to use this? People who are having important conversations. So I think that's a lot of people in sales and a lot of people in healthcare and a lot of people who are looking at lifetime value of that customer interaction. So if you think financial planners, if you think real estate agents, if you think physicians, those are the kinds of jobs, headhunting and recruiting, uh, these are the kinds of jobs where understanding this person is a huge advantage uh, and understanding how you relate to this person is a huge advantage compared to say uh, retail sales. So if I say sales, people go, oh, like a call center, boiler room, you know, outbound, and it's not useful there. Uh, where this is useful is when you're building and maintaining relationships. Um, and so that's, that's the direction we're going. And uh, an important difference between us and uh, looking at companies that do a great job like Chorus and Gong that are you know both multi-billion dollar companies, uh, they do amazing stuff and they're designed to take information and give it to the sales manager. And they own that, like that's what they're trying to do, that's what they're selling. And what we're saying is no, this information belongs to the person having the conversation. The feedback should go to them. I don't wanna make your manager's job easier, I want to make you better at what you're doing. And I want you to be able to do that really, really easily. So it takes as small an effort as possible to just keep getting incrementally better at the things that matter. Got it. So I was going to ask you one question, which I'll read, but I'm going to change the question because there's something behind it that's even more of interest to me, though you could technically answer both if you wish. The original question was, what impact has your training as a hypnotherapist had on your current work? Because to me, there's an obvious connection between understanding yeah. the human mind and trying to do it, let's call it artificially, so that you can get that much more input, et cetera. But I'd like to think about this from an entrepreneurial standpoint also, mm -hmm. because I'm a former educator. So educators, you know, we're, we're kind of like the classic ideal outcome, so to speak, for school, right? School really is about teaching content, about following the rules, about doing things, quote, the right way. 
having lots of information. And so teachers then teach that. And that's kind of like what they do as a, as a, as a lifetime profession. Entrepreneurship is about bending the rules, not in the, not in the illegal sense of the term, but thinking differently, being creative, getting out of the box, right. And learning to leverage what you know and what you do to help other people. Right. And to really scale that up. So I'm going to I'm going to distill this question a little bit more clearly, perhaps. But the idea is that as a as a hypnotherapist or as a service provider, like a doctor, like an educator. So for the most part, you think about, right, what do I do? How do I help somebody? And kind of like your primary focus is on providing that service. It's a little bit less about how do I scale it? How do I you know, turn it into something new that the market has never seen before. So I want to be able to help all my listeners who have that entrepreneurial bug, who are interested in, you know, taking what they know and turning it into something that could amplify. Because if you're a psychotherapist, you're helping one person at a time, maybe a small group at a time. Now you're sort of exploding the value because you're taking it to a whole new level. The same way, for example, with my mastermind groups, when I do presentations, when I do things online, all of a sudden I have the opportunity potentially to help lots and lots of people. So I want you to, if you don't mind, Scott, kind of taking us through your little journey, through not little journey, through your journey in a way that helps us not only understand where you were coming from and the transition to this, but how it ties into specifically helping people who are entrepreneurially inclined, who can't seem to figure out how to get from knowing lots of stuff to helping lots of people because they've figured out a tool, a resource, et cetera, to scale. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, so uh, I was the CEO of a mental health clinic when I you know, came up with this idea. And the, the simple way of thinking of that is, by the time a 15-year-old kid wants to talk to a 30-year-old stranger about the problem, the problem is very big. And in many cases, you're getting there too late. And I realized after you know, 20 years of seeing clients that you know, 17, 20, yeah, yeah, 18, 20 years, um, that we were getting to too many people too late. And there was all sorts of trauma and off the rails and, you know, all these things that could be prevented if we could have these conversations earlier and the, and, and at scale. And it's not about training more people one at a time. The answer is something to do with technology. And I know that a 15 year old stressed out kid is much more comfortable talking to their phone uh, and asking Google for help than they are asking the school counselor. And So if I were to say, okay, what if we could build something that was, and I'll just use me as an example, you know, if I build something that was 75% as effective at what I do as I am, and then could give that to everybody at once, what would that be able to do? And, And that's really where this came from, was the idea of let's build something that can talk to kids when the problems are small. And, and so there's that side of things. Um, and then getting into the entrepreneurial side, there's in entrepreneurship, there's this idea of move fast and break things and, you know, make, make quick mistakes, learn and iterate. And in anything, I'll, I'll just call it therapeutic in nature uh, and in artificial intelligence, you should not do that. Uh, the unforeseen consequences and the ethical guardrails that do and should exist uh, you know, deter that you know, with good reason. And, and so in answer to your question, like where, like my experience and training and all that, you know, 
impacts my thought process, I very much want to not move fast and break things. I, I don't want to be, you know, innovative at the at the expense of ethics. And the lazy, you know, and gigantic example is that, you know, seen in Jurassic Park, where Jeff Goldblum says, you spent so much time thinking if you could, you didn't think if you should. And, you know, we joke around about that sentence a lot, because the ethical implications of our technology uh, fully realized the implications uh, have a lot of potential for good or bad. And so making sure that we don't we don't move so fast because you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. And so we, we want to make sure that we're thinking things through mindfully, which creates a natural tension with our investors. And, and that means we've lost some potential investors because we weren't willing to move at the speed of the market. We wanted to really be thoughtful uh, in our uh, approach and roadmap. So let me let me drill down on one last detail because we, we you did end on the entrepreneurial side, which is of great personal interest to me. But again, I think is a lot of value to my listeners and just in general. Right. How does a person know? I don't know that there's a single answer to this, but what would be your advice if you're talking to someone who knows a lot about something? Again, we're using doctors and educators as examples, but it could be a lot of different things. And for the most part, they have a practice or they have a job and they're doing that and they want to find a way to be their own boss, to make a bigger impact, all of that. Number one, how do they know? if what they have is marketable? And number two, what would be some advice pieces you would offer, Scott, to help those people take the right kind of action to move forward quickly and purposefully? So uh, I learned this the hard way. So those are usually the best pieces of advice is people will pay more for painkillers than vitamins. And so if you know a lot you need to be able to, to think of it entrepreneurially, you need to think of the value of the problem, not of the solution, because people care about solving their problem, not how cool you are. Um, and I wasted a lot of time being very proud of myself and my team for inventing something new and special and patting ourselves on the back and saying, boy, aren't we clever. And it wasn't until we were really pointing this at problems not solutions looking for problems that uh, we could get some traction. And so, so drill down on that, please, for a moment, because I don't think everybody necessarily has clarity, at least if this conversation was happening two, three years ago before I did my own, let's mm -hmm. call it marketing work and things like that to really understand problem solution. So, so give an example, please, of what it would look like to talk solution first, as opposed to talk problem first. Yeah. And uh, again, to use a metaphor, you know, you got to know who the bad guy is in the movie for you to care about the good guy in the movie. Uh, and so we, we have to think about, uh, like I said, the cost of the problem. And, and usually that should get translated into dollars or some sort of major pain point. You know, like the, the one for Cyrano, a big piece of it is uh, suicide and especially suicide of people under the age of 24 uh, because it's the second leading cause of death for people under 24 in America is suicide. And it's a massive problem. And so when I said, hey, I want to help people, people are like, oh, that's good. I want to help people too. A lot of us want to help people. There's a lot of good caring people in the world. I'm glad you're on the team with us, but I don't care. you know. Uh, but as soon as we could say, this tool 
can reduce teen suicide by X, meaning we can save X number of lives per year. As soon as you can quantify the problem and quantify what you can do about it, now people will lean forward uh, because just saying, hey, I can do new things. I can teach this class online. I can whatever it is. No one cares. That's a vitamin. That's a, oh, that's better than it was before. But I'm not I'm not going to you know, stop scrolling to read what that says. But as soon as you can hit them with a problem that relates to them in some way, now they're interested. Uh, people care about their problems first. And if you can reduce or remove one of their problems, they, they will pay with their attention. And then if you can show them that that's a business, then they will pay with their money. Mm. Um, and so you need to get them to pay with attention before you get them to pay with their money. And a lot of people aren't trying to get them to pay attention. They're just right. saying, look, I'm awesome. You should invest, but they don't care yet. So they won't. Right. So it's, it's kind of interesting because to sort of translate this even further, and that was a great example, you know, again, as an educator, you might say, I'm just here to teach, right? As a doctor, I'm just here to heal or whatever. But when you bring problems to people's attention and on top of it, when you become aware, when you're looking around, right, one of the greatest opportunities for entrepreneurship is just being, you know, having your eyes wide open, getting out into the world, seeing what people need. And then when you identify how to address that, then, like you said, you can say, this is an issue. I see it all the time. When I talk about my mastermind group specifically for school leaders, because I got a business, I've got school leaders, I got different groups. So I tell them, you know, like I'm talking to busy school leaders who are overwhelmed. The pandemic has run rugshot right all over all their work. They're understaffed, right? We need to create a support group where we can problem solve, or we can share ideas, where we can help each other out because we're super isolated. We might be surrounded by hundreds or thousands of kids every day and adults and whatever, but who really gets what you do in the school leadership head position? The answer is almost nobody. Right. And sure. who could you be vulnerable to? So now all of a sudden we're talking in terms of problems and here's a solution. So that's relevant to almost anything that we want people to respond, you know, and that's why I'm encouraging people who are listening. If they have something that they think they could bring to market as a solution that'll help other people, that would be a great starting point because ultimately it's going to, um, it'll get people's attention faster. Yes. Another please. example, if I may, sure. uh, that we found was in real estate sales. We said real estate's a perfect example of what we can do work in. We can give you all this insight to be a better real estate agent. And no one wanted to be a better real estate agent. I mean, very few people want to be better at what they do. Uh, they just want better results. And so as soon as we switched from, hey, we can make you a more effective communicator in real estate, as soon as we switched that to, and, and everyone's like, oh, the market's great. I don't need anything. As soon as we switched it to, we can help you convert more listings. We can get you more listings because that's where the competition is. That's your pain point. That's your problem. You're having a first meeting and you're not getting them or you're not even getting that meeting. That's where we're targeting. That's what we do. And that's when the phone rang. Nice. Okay. So one last question in this segment, and this is one I try to ask often because Frankly, as you talked about before, the issue of failure is real, right? We don't grow if we don't fail. So I'm curious to know, Scott, what failure or maybe apparent failure did you experience at some point and how did you grow from it? Yeah. Um, so it, it wasn't an individual failure, but it was, it was definitely a, a shortcoming on my part that I learned a lot from. And that was, uh, it was in sports. So I was a water polo player in high school and college. 
And in high school, I was very good. You know, I was the MVP and team captain, all these you know accolades, which is great. And that is exactly enough to make me average in college. And I was on a good college team and we were competitive and we went to NC two way championship stuff and, and all that. And I was probably exactly middle on the depth chart. Like I was right there. And that was an uncomfortable place for me. I wasn't used to being there because in high school I was, you know, high up. And so I felt myself forcing things and I felt, I felt myself putting undue pressure on myself to be, to be the best on the team, even though the team didn't need me to be that. And so there was a lot of lessons that I learned the hard way about being in the rhythm of what the team needed me to be rather than what my ego wanted me to be. Interesting. And so finding a way to be of service to a larger team um, rather than being, uh, you know, the Kobe Bryant of the team. I, I definitely wasn't the Kobe Bryant of my college team. And no one who played with me in college would be confused about that fact. Um, but so learning that and, and finding moments where I'm forcing things or trying to be too much instead of being in rhythm and being in flow, because when I, and I think this is a, you know, true for most people, when I'm in my rhythm, when I'm doing the right amount of stuff, things feel much easier than when I'm trying to do too much or trying to be the wrong thing. And you can feel that forced feeling. And so for me, that's a, a big lesson that I, I reflect on frequently. You know, I, this isn't about me, but, um, but at the same time, I hear a lot of what you're talking about in my own experience. I, I have a chapter in my book, uh, which is about moving, uh, shifting the mindset from, from me to we, Yeah, because as a leader, um, you're no longer like, for example, we talked about sales previously. So if I was a great salesperson and I was killing it and then I get promoted to sales manager, right? So now my responsibilities shift. I'm no longer yeah. supposed to necessarily be the primary driver of sales as, a, as much to teach others, motivate them, set goals, all of that. Facilitate, now, now our success is the we. Right. And as leader, also, my role changes using education as an example. Before I was an educator, so I was in the classroom, one to one yeah. or one to many with my students. Now, my job is to facilitate great teaching and great learning in the building. So it's less about what I know and my own ability to walk in a classroom and excite and engage, and more about how do I create a framework where my teachers can be doing that so that they could be successful with their students. Yeah. So I think, I think it really all speaks to the same point of understanding that as we adjust in life, we have to be thinking continually about, do I need to still be the person I was? Is there anything where I need to be reflecting or acting differently? And oftentimes that's where the true growth happens. Yeah. So that, I love it. That was like a great way to end that segment. And now we're going to move into rapid fire. So again, the answer is short and sweet. Uh, we'll have a few of them and then um, we'll go from there. So the first one is if you could plaster a message on a massive billboard, what would it say? I don't know the exact wording, but it would be something like we're all in this together. Okay. Something that gets the people to realize, you know, uh, We've got too many tribes. We've got too many teams fighting. And the more we could just say we're all in this together, something yeah. like that. Bringing everyone together is, is critical. What are you not very good at? Math. <laughs> I am terrible, terrible at math. I'm probably not much better. And then the last one, what is a book that you most often gift or recommend? 
More recently, it's probably a parenting book because my son's five. But uh, in general, I would say it's a book, uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hess. Uh, that's probably the book I've given as a gift more than any other book. Very interesting. Okay, so so Scott, uh, you, you've shared a lot. Clearly, you've had a lot of success and have been in a lot of different places, let's say, along your career journey. Uh, let Lead to Succeed Nation know how they could reach out to you, how they can connect with you, learn more about your work, and hopefully continue to follow you as you bring this exciting product further into market. Sure. Uh, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn is the best place. Uh, and it's just, you know, LinkedIn and my name, Scott Sandlin. Uh, and I'd love to connect to people there or our website, Cyrano.ai. Happy to talk to people there. We have free trials on our site and all that stuff. We want people to be comfortable with what we're doing. Awesome. Okay. So yeah, we're going to link that up in the show notes. And I would be remiss, Scott, if I didn't squeeze out one final life lesson from you to, uh, to wrap up our conversation. Um. The last life lesson is um, Patton Oswald uh, gave advice that his wife had given him before she passed away, which was something to the effect of uh, this is all such chaos and there's so much entropy in this life and world. We just have to be kind to each other. And regardless of faith or religion or race or country of origin or whatever it is, there's so much chaos in each person's life and so much potential for suffering in each person's life that we just need to be kinder to each other. And that's Love it. it. Okay. Yeah, no, kindness is, is great. And we're recording this on a Friday. So as a Sabbath observer, it's a, it's a great mm-hmm. reminder for me uh, as we're going to sit around the table and, you know, we power down. So we interact quite a bit face to face. It's quite a change from the week. Um, just think in our family, but of course, in our communities, and as we think more globally, uh, to increase kindness and uh, and to think differently about people. You know, we're so inundated, whether it's the media or other things, to not necessarily think in those terms. And and I love the way we ended this. So thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Um, I look forward to interacting with you and getting to know you better in the future. And um, again, on behalf of everyone here at Lead to Succeed, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 